miss the show, no worries, on point and on the podcast. BC had a lot of reports, many, many reports, warning that a disaster was coming and to be prepared. And lo and behold, those in charge ignored the warnings. And here we are again, reacting to something everyone knew was coming. So for all the talk on climate change and the threat to our extinction, why then do we keep getting caught so flat-footed on getting prepared when we are told to prepare for them? We will talk about that. Kids, COVID vaccines are here. And while those in charge are giddy with excitement and can't get shots into kids fast enough, there is hesitation from a lot of parents who don't want to rush their kids to the front of the line because of the lack of long-term scientific data. Even the advisory body in charge of medical and scientific advice is saying not all parents want the shot for their kids and they should have that right to be cautious. We will talk about that very divisive issue. And why did Toronto police show up at a Norfolk County home, open fire and kill a well-known gunsmith who was known to many police forces and known right around the world for the expert he was? We'll talk to a lawyer hired by the Contango family who wants answers to questions they can't even make sense of. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. We have known for quite a while, we have been advocating with the federal government and the province uh, to rebuild our dikes. We've known, uh, we've spent extensive, uh, or done extensive reports on what needs to be done. But the totality of that is $400 million for just the city of Abbotsford. And we are not the only city. Chilliwack has issues and hope up the valley. So we need to get a little more serious about this because if we don't, this is gonna happen again. Why are those in charge never prepared for what they're warned about? Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, November 22nd. We got this month flying by very quickly. Very busy day here today. Uh, lots to go over in the show. We're going to take you to Wisconsin later on to get um, the latest on what is oh, just an utterly bizarre and devastating mass killing. And yes, the big takeaway is the suspect who's now charged with multiple mur- murders. And of course, he's got a long, long rap sheet for violent crime. Known bail jumper. Posts bail on Friday. And now... How many are dead and wounded? I mean, the children that he mowed down? I mean, why was he out? We will talk with someone in uh, Wisconsin near the crime scene later in the show. Uh, Are politicians finally getting back to work after five months? Five months. Yeah. That's a lot of time to take off, you know, given all the crises we face these days, right? And then you think, well, what's going to get done? Well, nothing. Because a lot of the stuff over the coming weeks is going to be like ceremonial. And then they've got to, you know, get all their committees set up. And they've got to do all the kind of getting organized. And tomorrow, the Trudeau government is going to lay out what the Trudeau government plans to focus on. And so the thing I'll be watching, like, are they going to go on a spending spree? Or will the Trudeau government heed the warnings of the banks, stop spending? And, of course, naturally, the NDP is already signaling, nope, we got big, big spending plans. And almost, of course, as soon as these MPs get back to work, then they go back on holidays. So for such a crucial election at such a consequential time, it's just amazing how little urgency the prime minister actually has in getting back to work. Because he should have been back weeks ago. 
And then, of course, all the talk today was again, who's vaccinated and who's not? Oh, my God, let's talk about vaccine mandates again and again and again. Let's get this straight. These vaccine mandates aren't actual mandates at the federal level, okay? So if this is going to be an obsession every day, someone tell me, because I'm not covering it every day, because I think it's garbage. we got bigger issues, and I, and I fail to see why no one ever questions Mr. Trudeau to explain all the loopholes in his tough new mandates. Remember, all he did was campaign, we'll have the toughest mandates going, and then every day, it's like, oh, loophole here, loophole there, this person's in, this person's out. So they're not, it's not a tough new mandate, but yet no one asks them. Certainly, uh, one of the big first things issued uh, to the MPs is going to be devoting through all the emergency relief for all the devastating losses, which is what they should be talking about. And a lot of the losses of what we're seeing in BC could and should have been avoided. And over the weekend, I started thinking about it a lot. You know, why do we always, why do we always, always, always get caught flat-footed, right? Like, why are we never ready? for the extremes that the climate-obsessed have been warning about for, for years. Like, we can pay all the climate taxes we want. It's not going to magically stop extreme weather. However, it should be paying for us to be better prepared for when it hurts so that we can just deal with it. Because extreme weather's not new. might be more, you know, happening more and more, but it's not new. And when it comes to BC, and specifically the lower mainland, there have been warning for years. Since 2015, there have been numerous reports, all warning the same thing, that the dikes across the lower mainland, all of them vulnerable to fail, should extreme weather hit. So BC officials at every level have been told, prepare for disaster. And it's not an if, it's when. And of course, no one did. Which is why we're now witnessing a disaster that likely could have been far less destructive. And Premier Horgan um, was elected back in 2017. And all this climate premier talks about is climate catastrophe. And he had the severe flooding in the Okanagan back in 2018. And he had the wildfires that burnt down the town of Lytton. And so he could easily have justified spending the hundreds of millions of dollars to prepare for the next big event. And yet last Thursday, you know, during a press conference, he said... Nothing could have prevented what's happening now, which is nonsense. Of course it could. You were warned about it multiple times. That you had to shore up the dikes to protect the lower mainland where farmers have been, you know, building homes and basically carved out a, an industry in a drained out lake. I mean, it's common sense that if you build infrastructure in a floodplain, when extreme weather comes, it's going to flood. And yet Horgan or anyone else in charge year after year after year even bothered to spend on things that could have mitigated the damage or protected these people. And BC's the province that's been collecting carbon taxes since 2008. What are they spending the billions on? I mean, clearly it's not for building the kind of infrastructure we need for extreme weather. What, did they think they could just go with a little pump? Here, we're going to just have this pump. This pump will hold everything. No. You talk about it all the time. Why aren't you ready? And so naturally, all the calls will go out that we need to take action. No, no, too late for that. Should have done it years ago. So then it'll become finger pointing. The province will point to the feds and the Trudeau government will point right back to the premier. And no one will take responsibility. And the bottom line is that everyone in charge has had time to act and they didn't.
And because of that, the losses on the ground um, and the hit to our economy are going to cost us billions and billions more than it had to. And and just to give you some context, when we had flooding in Alberta back in 2013, the cost of the province then, $6 billion. BC will be way worse because the flooding is also hitting our supply chains. So, like, why bother screaming about climate change and all the dangers if those in charge are not going to do, they, you know, what they need to do to prepare? Why do reports? Why hold inquiries? Why let all of this, you know, collect dust on a shelf? I mean, forget the summits. Forget the conferences. Put your time and money into getting prepared for what you keep telling us is coming. Is that asking too much? Never mind. Obviously, I know the answer. Uh, we're going to talk about this in the 9 o'clock hour with someone who knows BC infrastructure very, very well and can talk to how ignored it has been. Uh, not sure, though, if you saw this little nugget over the weekend. We'll talk about this as well. I mean, because as if BC doesn't have enough to deal with right now, as if their resources aren't stretched to the limits right now, then you've got this nuttery. Uh, you got taxpayer-paid environment guru David Suzuki, whose carbon footprint is larger than life, and he's marching in this fern, you know, funeral for the future with his extreme extinction weirdo friends and, and this was what his warning was take a listen we're in deep deep doo-doo and they've been telling us the leading experts for over 40 years this is what we're come to the next stage after this is they're going to be pipelines blown up oh interesting now what do you think would happen if i said something like that Careful, there's going to be pipelines blowing up. I'd get probably charged with eco-terrorism or some kind of domestic terrorism. But uh, yet here we, the taxpayers shell out money to make this guy rich and famous. And then he incites violence on this country. I mean, what a disgrace. What a disgrace that man is. We have known for quite a while, we have been advocating with the federal government and the province uh, to rebuild our dikes. We've known... Uh, we've spent extensive uh, or done extensive reports on what needs to be done. But the totality of that is $400 million for just the city of Abbotsford. And we are not the only city. Chilliwack ha has issues and hope up the valley. So we need to get a little more serious about this because if we don't, this is going to happen again. That is the voice of Abbotsford Mayor uh, Henry Brom, who was on with Mercedes Stevenson over the weekend on the West Block. And he says they all knew disaster was coming. I mean, there were several reports issued since 2015 warning that the dike systems in B.C.'s lower mainland weren't strong enough for a weather disaster that would hit. It would hit. That's what they were told. Get ready. It's coming. And, of course, no one in charge at any level of government bothered to get ahead of it. No one bothered to shore up the infrastructure that they were told that they would need to withstand an extreme weather uh, event that was guaranteed. And the crisis in B.C. is nowhere near over. I mean, there's more rain coming tonight. It's going to be months before we fix what's broken and flooded, assuming it can be fixed. And the lower mainland of Abbotsford, where all these farmers are underwater, is a drained lake bed. And those in charge know floodplains flood. And yet, for all the carbon taxes BC you know, pays and all the hysteria climate experts warn us about, now they say we need to act? No, 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 no. Time to act was years ago when you got warned. Chris Gardner is president of the Independent Contractor and Business Association. You are, Chris, uh, the largest construction association in BC, so you know your infrastructure, so I appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate the opportunity to be on your show today. 
Infrastructure is not all that sexy to talk about, but when it goes wrong and when it breaks and when we see what happens, it is a disaster. And I mean, all the warnings, there are multiple reports for BC that, that this could happen and this is what they needed to do was shore up the dikes and all the rest of it. And, and why didn't anyone listen? Well, it's a great question because these reports date back decades. Um, and um, so when you hear elected officials say words like, it's unprecedented, this was unforeseen, this has never yeah. happened before, the reality is we knew. And in 2015, the government of British Columbia did a study that said 71% of the dikes that they studied were vulnerable to failure. In, 20, in th just three years ago, the Auditor General in British Columbia said that the, the government and governments at all levels were not adequately managing the risk related to flooding and wildfires. And so, um, so in short, we knew. And uh, unfortunately, um, we didn't act. And as a result of a lack of um, preparation and the lack of we, we have very our ability to respond and apply the resources when disasters uh, do occur is woefully inadequate. And, and we're seeing that play out uh, in British Columbia right now. Yeah, I mean, the Premier uh, Horgan said just last week, I think it was Thursday, uh, they just couldn't have known that something like this was coming. But to your point, they did know. They were warned about this in these multiple reports, specifically to the pump system that protects those living within this lake bed, which are the farmers. And so the, these people rightfully can ask, why didn't you have a warning system to tell us to get our animals to higher land? Why didn't you build the dikes to be able to manage floods that come in from other countries? Like, why wasn't there a preparedness plan to to you know, you know, not be reactive, but more pre proactive. And so there will be plenty of blame to go around on this thing at the municipal, maybe not so much, but at the certainly the provincial and the federal level, they'll all point their fingers at each other, uh, Chris, as you well know. But the, the bottom line is, the, they all try to cut dollars and cents in areas that they don't think that they can, you know, they can kind of kick it down the, the can, but then it ends up costing us 20 times more. So you could have probably done this for a billion dollars. God knows what the bill on this is going to be. Yeah, you know, this is going to go down as one of the costliest natural disasters ever to hit Canada. And that's something I think, you know, um, people across the country need to understand the impact of what's happening here in British Columbia. You know, the largest port in the country, Vancouver, is a, was effectively shut off from the rest of the country. $2 billion a week in goods moved through that port. Uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline that, that uh, brings uh, 300,000 barrels of oil to Vancouver each day was shut down. Um, the government has imposed gas rationing in Vancouver mm -hmm. and in the communities around Vancouver. Um, so the consequences of underinvesting in infrastructure, uh, and we, we do that across, across the country, uh, we tend to uh, take a minimalist approach to investing in infrastructure, whether that's highways, roads, bridges, and, and other vital infrastructure. And then when we do build it, we don't, yeah. we often, our, our budgets to maintain and enhance it are often not what, what we should be investing in that infrastructure. And then when we get these, these weather challenges and, you know, climate's changing and we're getting more inconsistent weather patterns more frequently. So the idea that we're building to, uh, you know, these hundred year, once in a hundred year events has got to be thrown out the window because conceivably we could have another event like this um, in another couple of months or sometime next year. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, this will give climate activists kind of the proof that they need that see what happens when we don't take care of the planet. Well, no, see what happens when you build on a floodplain and then don't put in the proper infrastructure to deal with these extreme weather, uh, you know, incidents as they happen. And yes, they're happening more frequently. But, you know, I look at something like a carbon tax, Chris, and as much as I hate them, if we're going to pay it, I'd like to know that the money and I think taxpayers in this country want to know that it's going to into this infrastructure that can withstand this kind of weather. The investments are being made ahead of time because we can throw as much money um, at this as we want. It's not going to stop the weather from coming. It just doesn't seem like anybody across this country in charge is proactively getting systems in place to deal with the weather when it hits now. Um, and so we're always going to be reactive to this. I mean, the, the Alberta floods in 2013 were $6 billion. Again, big weather events. Um, and, and this one's going to be, I would, I would think it's going to probably be three or four times more expensive. I think, you know, if we're going to pay for climate change, it should be going into these systems to make sure we've got bridges and, and rail and all these dike systems that can protect these people and the areas around them. No. Yeah, no, you, you hit the nail right on the head. And, you know, the World Bank earlier this year ranked Canada number 64 in the world in the time it takes to process a construction permit. And and that's an embarrassing statistic for the world's 10th largest economy. And so when it comes to approving infrastructure projects, it's painfully slow. And, um, and that's costing us because we're under, not only are we underinvesting in infrastructure, we can't act fast enough to build what we need. So what we need to do is, is approve projects faster, build for the future, and replace aging infrastructure sooner. But the challenge is as soon as you propose a new project in any uh, major center across the country, um, the forces of no rise up and say, well, mm -hmm. we can't build it here because... And there's a long litany of reasons why we can't build something. And, and that delay uh, and those regulations are costing us lives as we, when, we get, when we find ourselves in situations, whether it's because of wildfires or floods uh, or other issues where we've got aging infrastructure that just is not meeting the needs of uh, communities today. And so what's your feeling, Chris, as far as rebuilding and, and, and how long it's going to take? And, um, you know, uh, if if there's going to be enough, I think, public sentiment to, to finally, you know, tell the Trudeau government or anyone else, you know, you got to start investing in these things and stop talking about the threat. Yeah, we're very long on studying, meeting and consulting, and we're very short on acting, building and, and, and mobilizing. And um, so we need earlier, clear, consistent communications when these disasters are about to unfold. You know, Washington state declared a, a state of emergency 48 hours, a full two days before British Columbia did. Uh, and, and it's hard to understand why, why there was that delay. Um, so we need faster declarations of alerts and evacuation orders. Um, yeah. We need to be able to mobilize people and resources faster. You know, the Canadian military have been called in, but it takes mm. it takes days and days and days oh, yeah. before we can get those resources on the ground and deploy them in a way that's going to make sense. We, we don't have the ability to act quickly in these situations. And then in terms of, of building infrastructure, the federal government, the provincial government and the province, they, they just have to sit down and, and start being serious about making the investments in infrastructure. There's too much finger pointing. There's too much studying. 
and uh, and it all and and all of the chickens come home to roost, and we have disasters. Yeah. yeah, we get the reports, we shelf them, they collect dust, we do nothing with them, and then we wonder, well, how did that happen? But here we are again, and uh, it's time to be more proactive. Chris, very much appreciate. I'll probably call on you again, given uh, this is not going to be over anytime soon. But I appreciate you uh, joining us. Great, thanks very much. Chris Gardner is president of the Independent Contractors and Business Association out in BC. So. Infrastructure costs to fix this thing is going to be monumental. You just think, if we just had put the money out to begin with, which I think a lot of people assumed had happened, it wouldn't cost nearly as much. And all these farmers and all these people would not have lost as much as they did. But it's always a learning experience, isn't it? A lot of parents still have some concerns and still want uh, more information about the vaccines for younger children. And we do have a relationship with Sick Kids Hospital that you probably know about, that if parents want to speak with someone, they can certainly call the Provincial Vaccine Contact Centre, or they can make an appointment to speak to someone at Sick Kids. I think it's, it's natural that parents would have questions, and so we want to provide them with the resources that they need in order to make a decision for their child. So that's Christine Elliott, health minister, announcing that kids' uh, COVID vaccines are available, could go into arms as early as Thursday. And I think she is right to suggest not all parents are going to be as excited as those you see on your TV. And I think what's missing from this conversation is this statement that NASI put out on uh, Friday after Health Canada approved the vaccine and said, and I think it's important because the fine print says a lot, quote, Children aged 5 to 11 are unlikely to be deemed capable of consenting to vaccinations and decisions related to their vaccines will likely be made by a parent. Given the term uncertainties surrounding pediatric vaccination at this time, children and their parents should be supported and respected in their decision regarding COVID vaccines. Whatever decision they make and should not be stigmatized for accepting or not accepting vaccines. So not necessarily a ringing endorsement. However, that makes, I think, a pretty clear message. Dr. Martha Fulford is a pediatric infectious disease specialist at McMaster Children's Hospital and Hamilton Health. Good to have you, doctor. Thank you. I know that you're not at all anti-vax. I am not here as an anti-vax, um, but I am. And, and, and parents even who are vaccinated do have concerns uh, about putting shots. I've talked to a number of parents. I talked to two doctors over the weekend um, that said that they would not be giving their child or rushing out to get this vaccine. So there is some concern about this shot getting into kids so young. Yeah, so I think it's, um, you know, I, for me, NASI actually nailed nailed the situation on the head. I thought their, their guidelines were excellent. We have to remember Health Canada approves uh, a product, whether it be a medication or a vaccine, and then the appropriate regulatory agency, in this case, NACI, will put out guidelines on how it should be given. And so this is this is sort of the difference between a Health Canada approval and NACI recommendations. And what they're saying, and, and I completely agree with, is that with COVID and with the vaccines, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Because mm-hmm. it is, and I think we're all well aware by now, uh, a virus that is clearly significantly more severe in in our older population. There's no doubt about that. And if we look at the numbers in Ontario, across our country, and actually everywhere in the world, children are the least affected. And and this particular age group, the 5 to 11 age group, are in in many ways the least affected by COVID itself. And so that's why when we have that risk-benefit conversation and have the pros and cons of whether or not uh, to vaccinate, 
it's a different conversation. For me, the the decision to uh, start to vaccinate as quickly as we could our seniors and more vulnerable adults was unquestionably mm-hmm. the correct decision. There, there. I don't. Well, for me, the the vaccines do an excellent job and still do a very good, very good job of keeping people out of hospitals, preventing severe disease, hospitalization and death. But with our kids, because they're so unlikely to have a severe outcome from COVID itself, it becomes a different conversation. And of course, this trial for the kids is sort of, it, it lags behind the adult stuff. And I think, it's a, you know, as Nancy points out, that the numbers were fairly small, that we're still learning. And, and, the, the, the language was the short-term uncertainties. And so for me, it's a situation where we've got this available, high-risk kids, the benefit may mm-hmm. well outweigh the risk, uh, the perceived or possible risk, and, and it may be, uh, as we learn, that it'll be absolutely fine. There are other families who are parents who are just anxious and just would like their child vaccinated. There may be situations where there's a very high-risk adult in the home that can't respond to a vaccine. And there are other families who are, saying, well, not now and maybe not ever. Mm -hmm. And I would really hope that we all respect the NASA guidelines, actually. Yeah, I mean, um, people shouldn't be asking uh, personal questions of Israel. I mean, it's no one's business, frankly, what you you do uh, and what you make the decisions on. However, you know what the climate's like right now. But we have a medical officer in Toronto who just a few weeks ago was demanding that the province mandate this for children. And yet NASA seems to be saying quite differently it should be offered um, they don't say that children must get this shot. No. And what they talk no. about in the uncertainties, and clarify this where I may be wrong, is referring to the long-term data, like the myocarditis, the shots, um, uh, you know, have, I guess, mm-hmm. been experienced in, in older boys. Uh, these are smaller doses, but the da- data is limited, and there were very small trial sizes. And so we don't actually know a lot about what we don't know. And I think that is the main concern for parents who yeah. are saying, well, we don't know what, like, what the long-term mm-hmm. study is, and they didn't really do huge sample sizes. No, and the trials are ongoing, of course. They're, um, they're large groups, and they're definitely monitoring uh, all of this. And if you look at the... Actually, anybody who's interested can look it up. The, both the Pfizer submission to, to the FDA, as well as the risk-benefit stuff, it's all available online, other than NASI documents. Uh, and they're not that difficult to read. They're not super technical in terms of being overwhelming, uh, overall, but they're ongoing trials. And again, and I think this is where the risk-benefit balance is going to be very individual. Uh, And I think for me, if if a family decides that that they would, you know, they think the benefit outweighs any any possible risk, then absolutely they should be supported in having their children vaccinated. But equally, the parents who decide to wait, absolutely, we need to also uh, respect and them. And this is really important because, of course, what we, I would really hope we don't start to see are individual organizations and individual entities yeah. suddenly making up their own rules, because that's not really a public health decision anymore. That becomes something that really is going to end up penalizing kids, and that's not fair, particularly because this cohort of kids, really, they're not the ones making the decision. Right. And so, yeah. so what what Nancy is clearly saying, at least to me, is what we should not do is in any way stigmatize or, or penalize kids uh, at this point in time or ever, actually, quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, and, and unless I'm mistaken, I'm pretty sure kids actually do have a voice. So there are children, even though they're small, they could say, no, I don't want this. And it could become yeah. a charter issue. But 
Just uh, before I let you go, Doctor, um, according to Public Health, you know, when you look at their numbers as of September 4th, my colleague um, Anthony Fury wrote about this, when you look at the numbers, there were 52 Ontario kids in the 12 to 17 age bracket hospitalized for myocarditis following Pfizer yeah. vaccinations. Uh, that's not a huge number, but that's a number that's high enough. A lot of parents would be concerned. Yeah. Yeah, the numbers are, yeah, we have had a lot of myocarditis. I think if, I haven't done the math uh, with the most recent report, but I think if you do the math right now, the risk at the moment with, with the teenagers around one in 5,000. Uh, and that's consistent with what's been seen in other jurisdictions. And again, it's, it's that personal decision as to whether you feel that the benefit uh, from being vaccinated outweighs any potential risk. You know, fortunately at this point, uh, the, the myocarditis that we have seen has been uh, self-limited. But again, it's still early days in terms of long-term follow-up of predominantly mm -hmm. boys. But we've also seen it in, in girls. It's not just boys. It's just more common in boys. And again, you know, we have a very large denominator, a very large number of people who have been vaccinated without any issues. But neither do, for me personally, I, I, I always acknowledge, yes, unfortunately, we have had some people who have had adverse events. And we, we should not be dismissing that and we should be paying attention there is research uh, now into exactly what it is that's triggering this. And so, I, you know, as with all things COVID, we're learning very, very fast. And it may be that I'll have a very different answer for you in two months uh, in terms of, of where we are and what information we have available. Stay tuned. Dr. Fulford, I know you're very busy, always very generous with your time. So I appreciate you chatting My with pleasure. us. Thanks. Thank you. That's Dr. Martha Fulford there uh, chatting with us. So. Stay tuned. Talk to your pediatrician. I'm not giving you advice. Neither is she. It's a personal decision that parents will make. Why did the Toronto police go to this Norfolk County home of a well-known gunsmith, shoot, and kill him? There's nothing about this case that makes any sense, which uh, I think is why we should be making sure that we get a very clear explanation as the investigation now sits with the SIU for God knows how long. And Roger Katenko... Um, we've talked about him on this show. He was known to be one of the most reputable gunsmiths across this country, not just for his skills of how to handle weapons, but repairing them. I mean, he was known around the world. He's worked with our military, our local police forces, who he repaired weapons for. And on the day Roger was shot four times, he was actually supposed to be going fishing with his brother. And instead, a Toronto police unit shows up at his front door. They bring their own ambulance. And within minutes of arriving, four bullets are pumped into him, including in his neck. I want to bring in Mike Smitchuk to the conversation, founder of Smitchuk Injury Law, and he's also been hired by the family of Roger Contanko. Good to have you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me tonight. This man was known to have weaponry, and so there shouldn't be a police force across this country, certainly in Ontario, that wouldn't know who he was, he was registered, he would be well-known uh, a name, and yet they arrived with warrant in hand, and no one has a clue as to what was on that warrant because they didn't really present it. It seems like they shot before questioning. Am I getting the scenario right here? I, I think you've got it exactly right that, uh, number one, no one has ever seen the this warrant. Uh, apparently there is one. It's now sealed is what we understand, so we can't even get our hands on it. And, yeah, they did exactly that. You know, I've said before the Toronto police are supposed to protect and serve. Instead, they surprised and attacked in this case. But it, it would be known, if you looked up this man's name, who he was, correct? Oh, yes. He was very well known in, uh, in the community and far and wide in Canada. 
Yeah, unless you're grossly negligent, right? Unless you just haven't done your due diligence. And one of the issues that we have and that a, a big question we have is how much uh, information did the Toronto Police share with the local OPP? Mm-hmm. Because the local OPP had actually, some of them had even had their guns uh, serviced by Rogers. So if they had simply contacted the local OPP, they could have found out a lot of information about this gentleman. Well, I do find it odd that no one from the Norfolk OPP would be in attendance of this uh, altercation or this incident or this execution of the warrant. Uh, they may have been notified. I don't know. And I don't know, as like you, I don't know what's on the warrant because, of course, it's all sealed now behind the, the SIU. Um, but why is it not, Mike, regular for the local detached to be put on alert when something like this happens? That's my understanding that, um, you know, that there's been a maybe in the past it wasn't there wasn't as much information shared and um, they didn't really coordinate things. But now uh, that that is commonplace, that if you're going to come into another jurisdiction, I'll call it, that you would want to coordinate with the local police. And in this case, seemingly that wasn't done. We do know that the OPP arrived after the shots were fired, like they were not on the scene when this actually happened. Right, which begs the question, what possibly could have happened to have them fire off shots so quickly? As I understand, and and correct me where the story might not be right, uh, his wife had just arrived home from shopping. He was in his his office where all his weaponry would be, and they get to the door, they detain her, but like basically it sounds like shots were fired almost immediately. You've got it right. And, you know, the troubling part about this is actually Roger was out with his wife shopping. They had returned home. And then we have information that there was a spotter vehicle on the roadway, uh, presumably from, you know, from the police. And they would have known that they were returning. And rather than wait until Roger is in his shop with, you know, with guns and with a customer, you know, they, 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 instead of, a lot of, of grabbing him or stopping him at the driveway, they let him get into the shop. And it's almost like, you know, it was a recipe for disaster, the way this was planned. Yeah, I mean, and I'm not sure how common it is, albeit it stuck out to me in the report. Why, why would Toronto bring its own ambulance to the scene? I mean, my thinking is you execute a search warrant, you bring the local police station to act as backup, Uh, And they would supply uh, an ambulance if it were needed. But when you're going to a call to a house and you bring an ambulance, it's almost as if you expect something to happen. Well, that's certainly what it seems like. And that's a question we have on our mind as well. You know, one of one of the questions is, uh, you know, because of this lack of coordination with the police and with the local uh, ambulance, the paramedics, is it is there a lack of trust perhaps with the local police? I don't know. Uh, again, we're speculating because we just don't have answers to so many questions. Had there been any issue with Mr. Contenko in the past that we don't know about or that hasn't been reported? I mean, to think that four bullets had to be pumped into him as if he were some th- sort of threat. I mean, he was 70, so it's not exactly like he's in his prime. And as I understand, he moved pretty slowly. One of his friends kind of described him as a sloth. So, I mean, if he's known on the registries to police locally, certainly that he's a gunsmith, if he's known throughout Canada and the world is a very reputable gunsmith, um, you know, the timing of shots fired to the kind of threat he posed, unless they were, you know, officers that weren't, um, you know, didn't reveal themselves to him and he thought maybe he was under attack. Well, that's certainly possible. And, uh, 
You know, the the analogy that I've used is, you know, if the police showed up at a butcher shop and they saw a butcher with a knife, would they perceive that as a threat? You have to you have to factor in that he's a gunsmith. There will be guns. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's that's the concern here that perhaps, you know, this was just planned extremely poorly and clearly executed uh, poorly as well. And so how do you um, investigate, let alone represent the family um, when you can't get any information, given that this particular uh, situation is a high profile, um, but it's also kind of locked behind, uh, you know, the the SIU. Um, They say it'll be a couple of months. But in my experience, Mike, uh, I have yet to see the SIU move fast. And and these things can take, you know, eight, nine months before we start getting answers. No, that's that's absolutely true. And, it, and it's just gut wrenching for the family. Um, you know, they want answers. They want answers now. And they're they're just at a, a great loss. But in terms of, you know, an investigation, we do, you know, we do respect the SIU's investigation and want that to run its course. But at the same time, you know, certainly uh, we've been approached by many members of the community that are very concerned, that want to help in any way they can. And so we're doing our own parallel investigation as best we can. You know, it's it's there's so much information that the police will have that we don't. You know, were there body cameras? We don't know. Um, so you know, that's that's another piece of the puzzle that we're looking to, you know, to, to solve. The other thing is, uh, according to reports, his wife, Julie, uh, has no idea of this warrant. Like when you go into someone's home with a warrant, you present the warrant and that's the permission for the police to enter the premises. And yet, no one saw a warrant, to my knowledge, um, and, and there were no directions and or, um, you know, instructions left for Julie as to what the actual um, search was being conducted. That's is right. that not That's not normal. Well, that, that's right. But the, um, the other factor is that uh, Roger's wife doesn't even speak English very well. She speaks Cantonese. And so mm-hmm. there, there's also a language barrier there. But certainly... Um, you know, there was there was no warrant left, and she she had a very hard time comprehending even what was happening because it happened so suddenly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she, and she is, I will say, she's extremely traumatized by this, and it's something that I think that she'll never forget about. Yeah, I mean, as I understand, they married back in 2012. He had just brought her over to Canada a few years ago from Asia, and so she doesn't have a lot of family or support system. But certainly, he's got family, and they have all come to you to find these answers. And, and Mike, what in your mind is um, kind of the, the biggest thing that sticks out to you? Well, you know, it, there's there's three parts to this. There's the warrant. You know, on what grounds was the warrant issued? Um, to be a gunsmith, you need to be squeaky clean. Or, you know, they uh, you will lose your license really quickly. So we want to know what the basis was. And number two, we want to see the warrant. And then when you turn to the planning of the actual raid, you know, why was it, like I said, did they wait for him to get into a shop? They could have taken him uh, on the driveway. They could have stopped him. And, um, you know, why did they wait for an alleged customer to get in the shop as well and endanger the customer's life? Uh, so it's it's really strange. Um, and then, you know, what else do they have? Do they have body cameras? Uh, what other information is out there? So there, there's just so many questions, questions swirling around, and that's why there's so much community concern out in Norfolk County. Everyone is talking about it and everyone's concerned. Nonetheless, we will stay on this, make sure it's kept in the uh, headlines so that we can get some answers for them. Uh, Mike, very much appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
That is Micah Smitschuk, who is representing the family of Roger Kentanko on the situation and uh, a story that certainly does not make a lot of sense right now. And so I hope for once in their life, the SIU can actually finish this within the months that they say it'll take. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.